I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. One of the things that I realized is just like how how little I allowed myself to dream that like life could be different, that I could feel differently. If you use the imagination to carve the spaces in yourself, you start connecting to them as a feeling. And then that feeling becomes the guide that allows you to then recognize, oh, this is a moment where I'm shrinking because I'm not in that feeling of expansion, for example. Welcome to a brand new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. And I'm Trana Winter. That was Kamala Makrel you just heard. We spoke to them about their brilliant poetry collection, Zom Femme, and how to finally move from surviving to thriving. More with Kama later in the show. Trana, you recently did a stand-up comedy show where the full lineup was trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming. The show was actually called Tales of Gender Affirmation. Have you ever done a show where every performer on the lineup was trans or uh, non-binary? Never. Really? Never. I didn't realize it fully in the moment, but when I got home that night and I thought about the show and it was such a great show, like the audience was amazing. The energy in the room was beautiful. It really hit me that like, wow, like this would not have been possible in 2013. Not only, I mean, for so many reasons, but I think the biggest one is that there just weren't that many of us at that time. And I think now we've reached a point where I think trans people, especially in the comedy world, are feeling more comfortable to take up space. Do you feel like the grandma of that moment? Do you feel like this sort of, <laughs> do you feel like the, Thanks a lot. the pioneer or the... No, I don't, but I, you know, like, I think the sort of emergence of so many trans people flocking to comedy and choosing that as their artistic medium um, is still relatively recent, you know? And again, I would never dare to say that I was first and I don't care about that. What's, I think to me, what has shown me that, that we are really here now in this very significant real way is all the trans comics who are on Twitter. Like, (laughs) and you know, I don't want to get too into it because it's exhausting, but the Dave Chappelle special that was extremely transphobic and has sparked this really big debate and, you know, even led to Netflix employees walking out, trans and non-binary employees and and their allies. And real protests in LA. Yeah. Yeah. Which is incredible, you know, that, but that comes from our ability to mobilize through social media. That's the you know, obviously the best thing about social media that it it allows us to amplify each other. And, you know, whereas like if something happened to me, like 
six years ago in comedy and I like tweeted about it, would it have really been a big thing? But now it's like when one of us is harmed, it's like we're all harmed and we all get on board and we can all really support each other, even from afar. The scary thing, though, that I feel is coming out more and more is that there is this backlash against the progress and the space that trans people have been able to take up for themselves, especially in the world of show business and entertainment. And even just today, I stumbled upon the existence of this a British organization that is queer, but it's only for LGB folks. And there's this very deliberate erasure of trans people and they have 46,000 followers. Like that's significant. When I see all of this, I I think that is what is driving some, some cisgender people crazy is that there's this whole other world that is not about them. Yeah. And I, <laughs> And in a sense, I think it's like, and, but at the same time, when I look at all of this, I'm like, they're triggered. So what should we do? We shouldn't back down. We shouldn't stop no, we taking can't. spaces, no, you know? We and definitely I, can't do that. I don't know what the answer to that question is because my, I react very violently, mm-hmm. you know, like it's hard. You're pretty for, rageful. I am very rageful. Yeah. It's hard for, I am at a which is weird because there is also this very empathic side to me. I wouldn't say that I'm an empath, but I am empathetic, mm-hmm. but I have limits. It, there is this expectation that every marginalized person should be a saint, right? It should like right. react with like love and acceptance and in the face of hate. And that's just certainly, that's not how it works. Because to me, fundamentally, I just, when something is completely illogical, I can't. Mm-hmm. I don't have patience for things that go so far against basic logic. And what I can't wrap my head around the reasons for transphobia and homophobia, misogyny. Like it's I can understand it in the sort of historical context and who this is protecting and who these systems are run by and all of that shit, but on a human level get the fuck over your bullshit hatred over nothing. But I think what we, I'm on this, I'm really different from you because I try to see the commonality. I try to see what we have in common. And I think what we have in common with people who disagree with us on this is is the, the we're looking for safety. Why they feel so unsafe by this, with this moment, why they feel so unsafe with trans visibility is beyond me. I, I don't understand what is so unsafe exactly. about this. It's like our presence yeah. terrifies them. But we have. But there's no violence. There's no, no violent there's no, act. Exactly. There's no violent act against them where there's so much violence in reverse. Yes. Like, like we're talking murder. Yeah. They have murdered us. Yeah. And yet we're supposed to try to extend our open arms to them. I can't. And it's so interesting because to circle back to Kama, our guest today, is you started at around the same time that Kama was putting on these incredible queer open mic cabarets. Kama was doing spoken word. They're not a comedian, but there were a lot of people doing drag, uh, theater, performances, music. You were doing stand up. I wish, I wish, I wish I had been to these uh, gender blender cabarets. What were they like? I have to say, as you mentioned, I am a rageful person. I carry a lot of anger within me. I'm trying to get better at it. Kama is someone that I look to. Kama is just this healing presence in the world. Kama is light. And I felt it the first time that I saw them when I went to Gender Blender, they ran it, you know, on their own. 
Sometimes the show would go for like three and a half, four hours, people doing all kinds of performances. That's where I saw Eve Parker Finley for the first time. That's where I saw Kai Chang Tom, Athena Holmes. It was really a scene. I love to see people thrive. And right now, Kama is thriving. They're getting so much recognition uh, for their uh, poetry collection, Zone Femme, that came out one year ago, won so many prizes. It was a CBC Best Book of Poetry. Uh, it's it, it's kind of, you know, pieces that they've written over the years, some pieces that they've performed live uh, about their experience growing up in Mauritius, uh, this island off the east coast of Africa. Kama was born there, grew up there, then went to university in India, moved to Ontario to go to grad school. You'll hear about this and then ended up in Montreal about 10 years ago. We spoke to them about that insane journey and how they landed here and, and really how they were able to transform um, survival into thriving. Well, okay, so the funny thing about it is, so I, I'm finishing my studies in India at the time, and I was considering two options. One of them was to go south in the south of India in Hyderabad um, to do dance uh, full time. Or the other option, I was like, I'm going to apply to grad school. And I, so at the time I knew there was a research project I wanted to work on and it was an interdisciplinary research project. And I really had a deep interest in doing that kind of intellectual work, like dedicating two, three years of my life to just the intellectual labor and seeing what emerges from that. So then I need to look for an interdisciplinary program that would be able to host me. And at the time, again, it's 2008. Now there's more of this, but there were not that many in the world. And the one program that I found was called, it was a master's degree in theory, culture, and politics I Trent University. So I apply and lo and behold, I get accepted <laughs> into the program out of the eight students that get accepted every year. I'm one of them. So I kind of like landed here randomly, really. I didn't really choose Canada. I didn't really choose Peterborough, but Trent University, this program specifically was the program that I chose. Uh, so that's how I got to Peterborough, but having no context, right? Like I, I landed in Peterborough in 2008. I, I did not even know I was a person of color when I came to Canada. I did not, that concept was so foreign because I was in Mauritius, which is like majority POC. And then I was in India, which is again, majority POC, uh, you know? So so when I came here, I had no even understanding of race and being a person of color. Like all of it was so foreign to me. And was that scary? Like, was that realization, like, what was the feeling of that realization? I did not quite understand when I was walking on a bridge and a burger was thrown at me and somebody said, go back to your country. You know, I didn't quite, I don't think I fully registered what it meant when somebody threw a Coke or threw a burger at you, which was Peterborough. And then there was all the dynamics of academia, which was probably the most toxic part. And so there were all those things happening to me. Like now I, I, I can talk about it now. I can name it as being an abusive relationship, but those, this is the language that I have access to now. And 24, 25-year-old Kama, who had just moved to, to Trent, to Peterborough, had no access to this. 
And somehow I do wonder whether it's a blessing because I think because I did not understand what was happening around me. Like, you know, and I did this very thing that comes from like the plantation heritage that I come from, which is what all the people in the history of my family have done. It's just like, you just push through, you keep going. You just push through, you keep going. You just push through, you keep going, right? And there are a lot of things like, you know, like I never thought about mental health because mental health was not something that existed in the cultural, social context that I had lived in so far so at no point did I even tell myself maybe I'm depressed it's like you wake up the next day and you're like okay you just push through you wake up the next day and you push through and then I finished the degree for me it was so important to actually finish that because you know otherwise I felt I would just go back home saying I have given up and I didn't did not want to do that so I still push through to the best of my ability uh, but I think if I had the tools, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think if I had the tools and the skills that I had now, I would have stopped this. I wouldn't say given up, but I would have stopped. Uh, but at the time, like, what did it mean when you're, you're on a student visa and you're like, what do you do? Do I lose this visa? This is like a great, op you know, it feels like a great opportunity. You're like, you've been given funding. You're one of eight people who've been admitted into the program. Do, do you stop now? Do you keep going? You know, like it's, it was complicated in that sense. And I feel education for a lot of queer people is, is a way out of, of a certain, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a ticket to the world. Right. And you, you actually write about this in Zone Fam. Uh, you write that for your family, you became big. Uh, they had a, a nickname for you. Uh, can you, can you say what that nickname was? It was Grandi Moon. Grandi Moons means yeah. like somebody of stature, right? Like it's like, and 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 the story that I I, I narrate in some farm was that my grandfather apparently, whenever he would leave the plantations and come to Kyopip, which was one of the towns in Mauritius, there's the Royal College of Kyopip, which was like the most prestigious boys high school, you know, and like and he always had this prediction, like someday, like whomever would be the first of course, boy of the family, of course, like the first grandchild or great grandchild who would manage to make it to the Royal College, that would be Grandimon. I did not make it to the Royal College, but I did finish high school. So in a way I became Grandimon. But also I think that's what oh. I try to unpack in this piece, right? It's actually how much it meant, not just for my parents, but like for the entire family lineage to get somebody who finished high school, who did well, who gets a full scholarship, but also then you end up in that uh, that same colonial framing, that same colonial space. And I did not know that either, right? Like when I, particularly when I moved to Canada, I did not realize what I was stepping into and that it's a different forms of violence. Um, it, it's not physical. You're not working in the plantation in that sense, but but it's still a form of colonial violence that your body is being impacted by. One of the sections of the book that really spoke to me was um, the section called Existence as Gender Survivance. And um, in the section of the book, you describe everything involved in surviving growing up as a queer femme child on a plantation island, on a plantation island. And the most overarching survival strategy was to make yourself as small as possible and to become invisible. And you write that you learn to make yourself discreet enough, small enough, polite enough, so you get to be the timid child, the helpful child, the studious child, the good child. And I think that's a mode of survival that a lot of queer folks adopt. And like, I know that for me, that 
idea of shrinking and making yourself small is still an instinct that I have. You know, like when I feel uncomfortable, when I feel scared, my instinct goes right back to shrinking myself and making myself feel invisible. And I'm really curious about how you've been able to, or maybe not, um, move beyond that survival instinct, you know, to realize that being invisible is no longer serving you and to learn to take up space. How do you think you were able to do that? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I do think it takes a conscious engagement actually with <clears throat> your survival skills and what thriving could look like and feel like. For me, that was a particular moment. Uh, sometime in my 20s, I had already moved to Montreal. Uh, I was part of a collective called Couleur, which I had founded, which was like a, a queer trans people of color um, arts collective that ran a festival every year. And there was one year I remember concretely, that's concretely I remember that uh, that moment, we uh, invited Kim Catherine Milan as our keynote speaker. And she started speaking of surviving and thriving. And I remember I just had like a moment, I had like such a huge reaction to this because I had been on survival mode all this way to that point. And after the talk, I went up to her and I was like, what do you mean thriving? I can't even imagine <laughs> what thriving is like. What, you know, like there was a part of me like, yeah, there was like an anger emerging. I was like, what are you talking about? Do you know what I'm working with? Do you know who are the people we are here? You know, because I was very much like all of us were really on survival modes. Um and then, and then she's the one who actually gave me that tool first, where she was like, at a point of time, you know, your survival skills are great because they allow you to survive. They allow you to leave your abusive home. They allow you, you know, do whatever it is you need to get by. And then she was like, at a point of time, you just need to sit down and figure out what are your survival skills and do your survival skills actually contribute anything to your thriving because it's true survival skills are great for survival like one of the things that i was great at was burning bridges oh my god i had so much fire in me it was part of my survival skills <laughs> but then i was like this is not helping me build long-term relationships but i think the other part that i definitely want to talk about which which i so fully believe in as one of my core values and core beliefs is in the power of the imagination one of the things that I realized is just like how how little I allowed myself to dream, like mm -hmm. how little yeah. I allowed myself to even imagine that like life could be different, that I could feel differently. Uh, and and yeah, I, 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 one of the stronger things for me was a few years ago when I realized that I did not even give myself permission to imagine that because I just didn't think it was it wasn't possible. I just didn't think it was possible. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I think is important to, to actually work on giving yourself permission to just imagine what does abundance look like? What would it feel like mm -hmm. in your body? What if you were actually safe? Like I had never given myself that permission. And I think if you, if you use the imagination to carve the spaces in yourself, you start connecting to them as a feeling and then that feeling becomes the guide that allows you to then recognize, oh, this is a moment where I'm shrinking because I'm not in that feeling of expansion, for example. But Cam, it sounds like those things are more connected for you now. Like it sounds like the image that's sort of being radiated is what you're feeling more internally because of the process that you just described of giving yourself the freedom to imagine. Do you feel like those two things have become more aligned for you? 
when I think of my younger self, I had a lot of rage and, you know, and I think anger is so important. Like, of course it's important, but I, as I was saying earlier, I had the kind of rage that just burnt all the bridges. <laughs> like, you know, at a point of time, I'm just like, I can't stay like this anymore. I'm just not going to have any friends. Nobody's going <laughs> to like me, you know? And I think I had to then reflect of how do I balance this, you know? And then when you think of like bell hooks, writing a book called killing rage, right about that, that that thing where like you have that rage that makes you want to kill and then all about love so i really then started integrating those lessons of course to my own context to my own personal history so for me that that notion of love i think of of, of expansion and love and of dreaming and asking better for ourselves specifically as trans people specifically as racialized and indigenous trans people of asking better for ourselves uh, and dreaming better for ourselves and i think in terms of what's you know manifesting or femifesting if you want at, at present in my life is just maybe uh, i've been growing this i've been uh, an, an understanding on the day-to-day -day asking myself you know what what does it mean you know i do ask myself when i wake, wake up in the morning what is my intention for the day you know I, I that's one of the things that i do every morning and that means so then it's an interrogation every morning where i'm like what does it mean for me to live in love for this day Right. And of course, every day is different, you know, and then the next morning I wake up and I ask myself that same question again. So and it's not that, you know, it's not that the, the vulnerability is still there. You know, that child in me is still very much there. Right. Like and, and I want to honor the child, but also I want to honor the other spaces that I have carved for that child so that the child that's in me mm. feels safe and feels loved. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I am on a bed on a Sunday night and in her latest email to me, she pops the question. So, you say in your profile that you are trans. Which pronoun do you prefer? Five times. Five times over one weekend where I get asked, which pronoun do you prefer? Which pronoun do you use? Which pronoun do you go by? Which pronoun are you more comfortable with? Which pronoun do you identify with? And you it's very inspiring to hear you say the things that you say, Kama, um, because I do feel a lot of times like I feel like stuck in the inner child. You know what I mean? So I don't, I think I'm trying to learn and figure out how to keep space for the inner child and have that inner child accompany me on the journey, but not take up all the space. It, it, it is this conscious effort. It is this work. And I think to some extent, it's a kind of work that I've been unwilling to do because it feels so big. It feels so overwhelming. And I, I know that I'm not, but there's a part of me that looks at myself as like lazy. I just want to be a creature of leisure. Like I don't want to do this. <laughs> 
but I know that I have to. Yeah, and I think we should also talk about fear, you know, because that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, because at least for me, I was totally that youth where I'm just like, if an elder comes up to me, I'm just talking about love. I was like, what are you talking about? What do you know? <laughs> this is my life. You know, like, I totally was that youth. I totally was that youth, which is funny because now I'm like, oh my God, I've become so new agey. <laughs> I talk about love and spirituality, but uh, I mean, I'm embracing it. But I, I think the... um the part of it is also understanding because it is scary, right? Because like, when you actually decide, you know, when you have all the survival skills that for me, like, felt like, you know, like that's really what protected me. That's what allowed me to attack. If I tell myself that I'm going to like even remove one of those, it's, it's scary because then you're coming face to face with your own vulnerability. You might be coming face to face with yourself for the very first time. What if the wars come down? Because that's when really you, yeah. that's when really you have to, you know, it's easier. Like one of the things that I used to do is I used to keep people at, at arm length and like push them away. That was so much one of my mechanisms. Like I, and I still see it. It still comes out now. Like I'm, I'm much better at this. But then the moment I decide that, oh no, oh, you know what? I'm not going to do this right now. And, and then you realize like, oh, you're actually choosing to be with me. You're actually choosing to still love me and there's something terrifying about it yeah. like it, it's a, a different form of vulnerability right like but i but i also think there's something just like expansive and beautiful about it and one of the things that i fundamentally believe in uh trana is I, I mean i've talked about this already but like it's it's the daily rituals for me it's the yeah it's the little things like you know i'm like you're not gonna break down that wall one you know like but if you go and you like knock into it with like a hammer once one morning and then yeah. you come back the next morning and then you come back the next morning and i think of rituals like those like for me it's about then doing the work of healing is just like those little commitments like where i'm just like i always say start with one thing i'm gonna do one thing for my inner child every morning and it could be like i'm gonna look at myself in the mirror and i'm gonna tell my child you know i'm gonna do my very best to love you and protect you that's it and and i like to say you do it in the morning your job is done you don't have to think about yeah. it you know like you that's one thing you've one way in which you've showed up for yourself in the morning right like and then you come back the next day and then sometimes it's going to, of course, you're going to fall off track. But the great thing is that we can always come back. That's what I love about rituals. Because like, I feel there's a lot of rituals where I'm like, I fall off my meditation practice for three months sometimes at times. But then I'm like, I can always come back. There's always a reset, right? Like, so, so, so that's what I like. I like yeah. little rituals. And then I like that we can... Sometimes we just fall away, like we stray away from them, but we can always come back. Do you think that writing Zom Femme was this thing that allowed you to do that and to really look at yourself? Because it was a piece that was so long in the making. And, you know, we have the published book, but it was also created as a live performance. And one of the things that I love about the book is that the way that the writing is visually laid out on the page mirrors a kind of physicality and performance. So can you talk about that sort of process and was it sort of that confrontation and finally taking a real look at yourself and your life yeah um absolutely i mean 
in many ways, that's it. This the, it, this book was published in 2020, but it was five years in the making. Five years in the making in the sense of like, I didn't know I was making a book, right? Like the book came very late in the process, but initially those were separate spoken word pieces. So in that sense, this what became the book later on was like actually writing that happened over the course of five years. And yeah, and this entire period for me was very much the the period where I was thinking for the question of the inner child, of the child that I was. I think tied to this was a, a lot of grief, to be honest. There was a lot of sadness uh, around realizing now that I was an adult in my 30s. And then in that process, yeah, like now when I look back, it's, when I look back at the book and I get asked about it, I'm like, yeah, I wrote this for the child in me, you know, because I think I needed to create, first of all, like narrate how this little body just kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking under, you know, living under this, this complex web of what it meant to be a British colony with plantation history, right? Like having such a close... My dad was born in 1950. Mauritius becomes independent in 1968. You know, so for 18 years of his life, he was literally in colonial Mauritius on the plantation. And I had never realized this until I was an adult because I was a child born in the 80s. So I was that first generation that like, you know, for whom... We talked about Mauritius's independence in 1968, but it seems so far away. And it's only way into my life as an adult that I calculated when my dad was born and when Mauritius was independent. And then it clicked. I was like, oh, that's how close that colonial history is to me. But also, you know, I, as I said, I was somebody who went to university and the ways in which I studied colonial history were very theoretical. Like it, it said nothing to how my family lived it on the day to day. And that, of course, very much influenced the parents they became and what our home looked like and what dreams and expectations they had of life, what dreams and expectations they had of their kids. Uh, and then you're a queer kid in the middle of that, right? Like, so... So I really, for me, it was important to then understand the entire context. I think one of the hardest parts for me was to realize that I I have to parent the child in me, you know, like I, because I was like, ultimately, that child in me didn't get the safety and the love and the validation that they needed. And now as an adult, there's only me who can do that. Like only I get to nurture that child. And and that it's even now, as I say it, it still feels really hard because I have this part of me that's just like, but that child deserves better, you know? Like, and I think about this for everything, you know, and one of the things related to this is that, you know, you're talking about the visibility and the, you know, the success, let's call it success that I'm having right now. And there's a part of me that's just like, yeah, but you know, that 25-year-old Kama who had just gotten to Montreal, like in debt, you know, like in debt from grad school, you know, who couldn't even get a job to like cook as a dishwasher in a restaurant, you know, I was just like, and it was such a, and I'm just like that, that youth, you know, I wasn't a kid then I was in my twenties. I'm just like, yeah, that immigrant queer kid deserved better as well. You know, so there's a part of, you know, when I got the invitation to perform from the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, I, for like, weeks after that it was such a complicated feeling because all i could think about was that like yeah 10 years ago i deserved this and that's when i needed it the most you know (laughs) so there's always that part of me i feel there's always a part that's grieving 
what the past me did not have, you know, because I do think the past me deserved better, you know, like, and, and needed it so much more than, like, you know, I needed that kind of safety or trust or just somebody to see me. That's all, you know, like somebody to see me and to just say, okay, you're going to be fine. Like, you know, like, even if it was just that, but I did not have any of that. So, so in many ways, the work is always then in relation to the past self. Um, yeah. And, and I, can't, I can't entirely shrug it off. Like that past uh-huh. self is always going to be part of me. Thank you so much, Kama, um, for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Love the two of you so much. Love everything you do. <laughs> and long, long, long life to Chosen Family. Thank you. Kama Lamacorel. You can catch Kama's performance at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts as part of A Flux Biennale Transnationale Noire on November 6th and 7th. Their book, Zone Femme, is available wherever good books are sold. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? So today we have a, a film club special on obsessions. What are you obsessed with? So it's Halloween season, which I love. I know you don't care about Halloween. <laughs> you don't care about any holiday season. I'm the Grinch. <laughs> um, so I've been watching like scary, disturbing, you know, thriller type movies. And I've wanted to see Jordan Peele's Us for a very long time because I loved Get Out. Who didn't? Um, but I heard that us was really scary. So like I kept sort of putting it off. I love to be scared, but I don't want to be too scared. <laughs> There's a family in our driveway. There's not a family in our driveway. Huh? Who is that? Uh-uh. Oh, There's a family. Child scared of a family? Okay, all right. Um, But I finally sat down and watched it. It stars Lupita Nyong'o in one of the greatest cinematic performances I have ever seen in my life. Yeah. I'm haunted by it. I can't stop thinking about it. So, how do you sell it? How do you describe it? Well, it's hard to describe because I don't want to ruin a thing (laughs) because I was totally surprised by everything that I saw. Yeah. But essentially, it starts off in the 80s um, with the child version of Lupita's character at a fair on the boardwalk with her family. And it's a, you know, dark, spooky, stormy night. And her mom goes to the bathroom. Her dad's playing one of the games at the fair and she takes off and she walks on the beach and stumbles into this very bizarro fun house where she sees another little girl that looks exactly like her. And then you cut to Lupita grown up and now she has kids. And that's where I'll leave it because (laughs) everything else is just the most unbelievably wild ride. And I can't stop thinking about it. Um, Please watch it and then DM me because I need to keep talking about this movie. I can't recommend it. Justice for us, because when it came out, you know, obviously people were expecting another get out, but you can't replicate the sort of effect. To me, this was better. Really? Yes. Really? I loved Get Out, but this I 
adore and oh, will wow. be obsessed with for the rest oh, of my life. Okay. Like this will be a movie Your that brand I- brand ambassador for us. I am. <laughs> I know that for a lot of people, there are unanswered questions. And I think that's intentional. And I think that you can enjoy it just very superficially as a great thriller, but it's very- allegorical and metaphorical and you don't need to have all the answers i like don't try to poke holes in it what's the point right what are you obsessed with i saw titan the <laughs> french movie that's uh, so it's the french movie that won the palme d'or in Cannes. um that's actually representing france um to the oscars the academy awards so where do i even start a horror movie, people don't necessarily put in this category, but it, it is a sort of body horror movie. It's called, um, directed by uh, Julia Ducourneau. Titan is kind of the nickname of the main character, uh, Alexia, who first seen, again, a child uh, into a car crash. Um, she gets to the hospital and then they insert a, a plate of titanium in her head. And then it kind of changes, obviously, her body, but then, you know, it changes her life. Eventually, she becomes a dancer performer at car shows. And eventually, we start noticing that she might hurt people, murder people, it's not really clear. And eventually she's afraid of getting discovered for all the crimes that she's committed. And now the fun starts. <laughs> well, the thing the thing I'm not saying is also that she has sex with cars, right? Oh. That's the whole thing. That's the whole premise of the whole thing is that she's dancing on the cars and eventually she has sex with cars. Wow. I forgot to mention that, but that's the biggest part. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then she also kills the guys. Anyways, that's then that's only the setting. That's only the setup. That's, right. the, that's the beginning. So she has sex with a car. Something happens and then she needs to leave. And then there's that. And then then we enter into the queer side of the story because it's really a queer movie. She changes her identity to become uh, a young man who was abducted years ago. I'm giving away a lot, okay. but that's kind of, but then that's all you need to know. And then she, ah, uh, she runs into like the father of the guy, of the young man, and they have oh a God. fucked up relationship. Okay, um, this is wild. It's so wild. Is it hard to follow? Is it confusing? It's a bit confusing. It's the, it's bizarre. It's, I hated it and I loved it. And it's really good, but really stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> and people people in the theater were gasping, <laughs> laughing. I heard that people, some people were, walked away. You have to see it. It's kind of Is queer. it really like gross though? Like in terms of the violence and like, is it? It's graphic. Okay. It's very graphic, but it's not gross. It's not gross. And I'll th I think a lot of people are pretending to love it. You know, all these like smart French right. movies. I think that they're, that's the issue. It's ridiculous i love the pretension i love it's it. an art you know it's a it's but the fact that it won the calma the palme d'or and that it's going not it's just representing france we don't know if it's going to be nominated it's it's pretty crazy uh and the actress i mean uh agathe roussel it like she is phenomenal phenomenal it's a really really strong performance and i think actually our obsessions should be lupita and agathe Yes. I think that's the... Yes, that let's these, honor them. Yeah, I think these are the... Both of them in these performances are really incredible. 
All right, it's time for the best part of the show, the credits. Yay. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Natalia Ndongo is our contributing producer. SK Robert is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. We're recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Of course, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Chosen Family Show and check out our column and Astro video series Lucky Stars on extramagazine.com, xtramagazine.com. Honestly, look it up. Uh, it's Scorpio season. The Our- best season. <laughs> the best. It's great. You can listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with, with someone, leave a review, invite some more people into the fun. And on this note, we never, ever can say goodbye. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.